What completely captures your attention? Your mom, it's probably your children, right? Your child, it's probably a book or maybe it's Encanto. Some of you might not know what that is, but most of the kids probably do. Your teenager, it's probably a mirror or a mobile device, right? If you're a dad, it might be a consuming deadline at work. Now, remembering we're talking about things that capture our complete attention. If you hunt, it's probably when you cite that eight-point buck. I guarantee at that moment, it has your complete attention. If you love to shop, maybe it's your favorite store on Black Friday. For me, it's traffic. (laughs) See, I like to ride motorcycle. And a long time ago, before my wife ever would even consider letting me ride a motorcycle, I had a good friend who rode a lot, and so I was asking him for his advice, and he said, Mark, remember this. Every car is a bullet. And just remember and be aware of what's going on around you and always have a way out. This bike of wisdom has saved myself and many, many times. So when I ride my motorcycle, the traffic has my complete attention. I'm always watching because it's just just like that and something can happen. You know, Jesus gave his followers some hints about something that captured his complete attention. In the Gospel of John, he said things like, I say what I hear the Father saying. I, I do what I see the Father doing. Apostle Paul gives us some cryptic illustrations in 2 Timothy 2 when he he makes some parable-like statements and then says, single-minded obedience yields results. Now, those words are not in 2 Timothy 2, but that's what one can extrapolate from the statements that he makes. Think about that. Single-minded obedience yields results. But it's also true that Christ's followers are targets of the evil kingdom, engrossed in spiritual conflict every day, whether we realize it or not. The demonic realm is devoted to destroying our faith, or at least keeping us from maturing by diverting our focus and dulling our senses, our spiritual senses. We have to actively resist, remembering that the will of the Father the Lordship of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit have been set into motion on our behalf so that we might become more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So since this word is our theme this morning, let's take a look at the definition that I googled on the word dull. Sluggish, indifferent, lazy, Lacking interest or excitement, feeling bored or dispirited, all of us have struggled with this, especially on Sunday afternoon, right? After that big meal and you're just kind of like, oh, I'm just here, what do I do now? i got to make myself get up and go do something. But what we're going to do today is take this passage that Caleb read out of the book of Hebrews and dissect it. As we do, I'm hoping that we'll come to a better understanding of these urgent words. I'm going to break it down into three headings. The disaster of spiritual dullness, 
the defense against spiritual dullness and the remedy for spiritual dullness. The disaster of spiritual dullness. I'm going to break this down into first the deception of spiritual dullness. And if you want to continue to read on with me in Hebrews, we're going to just kind of camp through that passage. Uh, 5, 11 through 14, again, says this. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the writer of Hebrews was directing this message, this epistle, to Jewish converts who were returning to Judaism likely because of the intensifying persecution that was beginning to take place in the second half of the first century. All of a sudden, being a Christian, for whatever its promises, wasn't fun anymore because there was a legitimate cost attached to it. The whole epistle defends and upholds Christ's ultimate superiority and authority, which is why we earlier read Philippians 2. The recipients of the epistle would likely have been intelligent, educated individuals who understood and had received the gospel message. They likely would have been reading the letter with interest, drawn in by the arguments that the writer was making. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's who Jesus is. Yes, he's our high priest. Yes, he, he's the lamb. Yes. But then at the very end of chapter 5, it becomes personal. And he certainly grabbed their attention with this comment about, what's going on? You're like children. You're, 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 you need milk, not solid food. That would have gotten my attention. If we go back to the garden, it's ironic that in spite of the serpent's promise, when Adam and Eve took and ate from the tr- from fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, remember what, his, remember what his hook was? Eat this because you'll be like God. Remember that? But it didn't make them godlike in their knowledge, did it? It made them dull. It killed them. Spiritual dullness deceives us into believing that after professing Christ as our Savior and Lord, we can continue to simply live life however we desire. We draw near to the Christian lifestyle because of the promise of eternal security or to the Christian faith because we want to be good people. But we fail to recognize and even resist at times the attempts of the Holy Spirit to accomplish real, deep-down, transformative work in our character because at our core we really feel we're okay. Our dullness makes us unable to recognize and come to grip with the evil that resides within our hearts and relegates religious activity on our part as nothing more than a head nod to the cross. The mark of spiritually mature individuals, those who recognize and embrace the inner work of the Holy Spirit, is the increasing ability to embrace good and avoid evil by God's standards. That sentence is worth reading again. So if you had checked out, listen one more time, please. 
the mark of spiritually mature individuals isn't how much Bible you know, how much worship music you listen to, how often you go to church, whatever Christian activity you do, that's not what develops or what determines spiritual maturity. It's those who recognize and embrace the inner work of the Holy Spirit, which is proved in our increasing ability to embrace good and avoid evil. Let's go to the next few verses, Hebrews 6, 1 through 6, which I've uh, put the caption, the danger of spiritual dullness. It says this, Let us therefore leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Contempt. I think I was in college when I read that passage for the first time. I might have been 19 or 20 years old, and I, 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 I did a double take. I said, what? Wait, whoa, what? This is a pretty, pretty tension-filled comment that the author's making after he has the Hebrews' attention. It's pretty clear that the author is intentionally creating tension in this passage. Now, there are those who advocate that the use of the word tasted refers to one who superficially tasted the gospel and outwardly appeared to embrace the Christian experience, but inwardly is never committed in full surrender to Christ. In this case, the act of falling away is simply a public expression of a true position and rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Others maintain that the qualifiers once been enlightened who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and powers of the age to come, seem to indicate a deeper understanding of redemption and a redemptive relationship with Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes this. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There's an important qualifier here. An intentional rejection of God's truth accompanied by a devotion to the deceptive teaching of the dark kingdom. Folks, this is where we live today. We live today in a culture that takes pseudo-biblical truth and twists it and turns it and applies it in a way that sounds good, but for those who follow it, leads to hell. It's doctrines of demons, just like the Apostle Paul was talking about here. This is why devoted Christ followers must develop a routine of ongoing Bible study and meditation. We must understand that the elementary doctrines of Christ, that is, repentance from, the dead, from dead works, unfruitfulness, um, faith, 
ordinances, laying on of hands, resurrection, eternal judgment. I mean, all these are topics that one might not consider to be elementary. These topics are meant to serve as pathways to character reformation, that is, maturity, which is the real work of the Holy Spirit. So here it is. We either move on to greater maturity or risk falling away. There's really no middle ground here. In the next few verses, we see what I've called the destructiveness of spiritual dullness. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Here the writer of Hebrews may have had in mind the words of Jesus in John 15 when he said, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But what is this fruit? What is it talking? Is that like, is that like doing good things for people? Is that like good works? Is that, is that what the fruit is? See, a lot of people kind of think that because we're so involved in outward appearances, right? And, and we're so concerned and we put so much effort and time to what other people think about us. So, so we have this notion that fruit is, well, work hard, do good, and, and then I'm good. I mean, I'm doing good fruit. That, that's not what fruit means at all. Because in this same book, Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 11, the writer writes, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. The Apostle Paul chimes into that in Philippians 1, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, right? There it is. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Everyone say fruit of righteousness. So when you see in the New Testament the word fruit, what is it talking about? Righteousness is talking about holy living, sanctification, living uprightly before the Lord. Filled with a fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Make no mistake, the work of the cross has but one chief end that God's name be glorified and exalted. If we believe our salvation is the only work of the cross, and we don't completely understand redemption, our being conformed to the image of Christ produces the fruit of righteousness. Apart from this, all else is thorns and thistles or unfruitful branches and serves no other purpose than kindling. So I hope, like the Hebrews, that God has gotten your attention. Because I can guarantee you at this point, they're probably on the edge of their seat going, what on earth is this guy going to say next? Is there any safety here at all? So let's move on to our second point, the defense against spiritual dullness, who is, of course, Jesus. In the next few verses, we'll talk about spiritual dullness 
denounced. Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Oh, sigh of relief. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. And there's that word, sluggish. That's where I got the whole sermon title. This was the centerpiece for me. That you may not be sluggish, dull, insensitive, lazy, but rather imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So after the austere warning in verses 4 through 6, the author proceeds to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ by his confidence in their devotion and commitment. He recognizes their good works and assures them that God takes such things into account. I love the way verses 11 and 12 read in the Amplified Bible. I like to just read those right here, even though we read them just a moment ago. It says this, And we desire for each of you to show the same diligence all the way through, so as to realize and enjoy the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be spiritually sluggish, but will instead be imitators of those who through faith lean on God with absolute trust and confidence in Him and His power. I love that. And by patient endurance, even when suffering, and are now inheriting the promises. The word sluggish is from the Greek word nothros, meaning slow, sluggish, indolent, dull, languid. The importance of this directive cannot be overstated. Being reminiscent of the warning that Jesus himself gave to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. You remember that? I know your works, but you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. Therefore, since you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And he goes on to say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And he ends with this warning, so be zealous and repent. So that might be a word for some of us this morning as the Holy Spirit continues His work in our hearts. So this last statement ties back to Hebrews 12.11, which was mentioned earlier. Clearly the Lord's discipline is an essential part of character reformation. That process which yields to the one who's willing to submit the fruit of righteousness. Submission, unlike what it sounds like, is not passive in this regard. But submission is an active dying of self. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Galatians 2.20, where Paul writes to the Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Some of you are like, oh, I didn't know we were going to have a quiz this morning, but there you go. The second point, picking up the next few verses in chapter 6, I put under the heading, Spiritual Dullness Deconstructed. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Hebrews 6, 13, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham 
having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, if it were possible, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge to the cross, that's where we fled for refuge, is to the cross, because we're fallen, sinful, flawed human creatures that left to ourselves are doomed to destruction. So we fled to the cross because Christ made a way for us to flee to the cross. So we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What, what's that hope? Well, that Jesus is going to come someday and make it all better. Uh, maybe, okay. Well, so that this trial is over. Okay, whatever. Oh, so I can get that new car. Really? No. The hope is the inward character development, right? That's our hope, that we're being changed and transformed into his glory, as Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians, from one degree to another. That's the hope, that we're becoming more like Jesus, folks. It's not just a song that we sing. The author reminds the church of the event that set God's redemptive plan for humanity into motion. His covenant with Abraham. Abraham's subsequent obedience and God's ultimate fulfilling of the covenant in which we, Christ followers, are participants or partakers, as the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that the Gentiles, that's us, our fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. To think that God, for whom it is impossible to lie, yet swore by himself because there was none greater, in order to ratify the covenant of which those who live by faith are the benefactors. What an amazing thing. For those of you that are really following me in Scripture, if you'd like to turn now to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-11, through 11, I'd like to read these 10 verses, 9 verses, because I think they deal with this beautifully. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 11. And just listen if, if you're not following with your Bible. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. <laughs> Therefore, brothers, sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, 
you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an epic passage of Scripture. We should read this every day. Surely there's no clearer statement of the expectation placed on the life of the believer by the living Word of God, nor is there a greater declaration of His promise to those who believe. Our challenge is the here and now in which we live, but the worldly lifestyle which does not serve the church well, which lulls us to inattentiveness, an increasing spiritual lethargy, a dullness of soul we must war against every single day with everything that is in us. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, spiritual dullness decommissioned. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So imagine going to a worship gathering and the main focal point of the sanctuary in which you find yourself is a six-inch thick curtain that goes from floor to the ceiling and across the room, blocking off everything that's behind. But you know what's behind the curtain, or rather who, the manifest presence of Yahweh. But, but you can't go inside. In fact, no one can except the designated survivor. Right? The high priest who will perform the required rites. You're sitting there. He enters the sanctuary from the back. You know this without even having to turn around because of the noise he makes. Bells have been sewn into his garments so that as he moves around behind the veil, people can hear his movement. As he makes his way to the front of the room, you notice a rope tied around his ankle. You're like, what? He's got a rope. See, he's going into the presence of Almighty Holy God. To prepare, prepare for this moment, he's cleansed and purified himself through a symbolic sacrifice in which after confessing his sin, he is sprinkled with the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, without blemish, as an act of atonement. If for some reason he hasn't thoroughly prepared himself, if he carries any unconfessed sin with him behind the veil, he'll die, and the jingling will stop, and the rope around his ankle will be used to pull him out. You see, no sinful man can survive in that holy place. <laughs> Fortunately, things go well. He emerges from behind the veil. Everyone breathes a little easier. He's atoned for the collective sins of the community of believers for one more year. For one more year, justice is satisfied. But this isn't our experience. We who follow Christ in obedience and acknowledge His Lordship. When Jesus went into the real holy place, and that's how the author talks about it in Hebrews 9. It wasn't a shadow. It was a copy. It was the real deal. 
when he went into the real holy place where God the Father dwells, he atoned for all sin once and for all by sprinkling his own blood on the altar. Justice was permanently satisfied that those who follow him might live in the newness of life, free from the deadly effect of sinful thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. This is our hope, folks. This is our anchor. Through Christ, our innermost being is infused with new life. We can truly begin to live. How could we ever become dull to this truth, regardless of our circumstances? Finally, we'll take a look at the remedy for spiritual dullness. I'm going to read three short passages. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning, discerning rather the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 15 say, Remind them, that's us, of these things, and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. One of the first life lessons my father taught me was to always make sure my knife uh, was sharp before I used it. He told me that a dull knife could be very dangerous because the effort required to cut with a dull blade can easily backfire and end up requiring stitches. Has anyone ever experienced that? Some, yeah, right? Whereas a razor-sharp blade cuts swiftly, effortlessly. This is a paradox. A sharp blade has greater effective power than a dull blade for doing the job it's supposed to do, cutting. In this sense, it's the more dangerous of the two. A, a dull blade, however, is equally destructive in doing the thing it's not supposed to do, when it cuts the user instead of the object. This truth applies to our spiritual edge. The drift into worldliness, that would be love of the world and things of the world, caused by spiritual dullness can have a devastating effect on our relationship with God and with others. others. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he describes worldly people as having an appearance of godliness 
but denying its power. The New Bible Commentary puts it like this. The worst feature is that these people claim some form of godliness, pretending to be religious, but having no intention of putting their beliefs into practice. The mere form without the power is highly damaging. It is no wonder that Paul urges Timothy to have nothing to do with them. This seems to describe exactly the times in which we live. Voices around us clamor with godless advice on how we can make humanity better. It all sounds great on the surface, but reality paints a very different picture. 53 years ago, in 1969, Ralph Carmichael, a Christian composer of the day, wrote this. Now think about what was happening in our culture in 1969. That was the love movement, right? The hippies, make love, not war. But Mr. Carmichael writes in the song, talk about love, how it makes life complete. You can talk all you want, make it sound nice and sweet. But the words have an empty ring. And they don't really mean a thing. Without him, love is not to be found. For love is surrender to his will. Sing about love and the strength it can give. You can sing how you're ready to face life and live. But you know as the days go by that no matter how hard you try, without him, Love is not to be found. For love is surrender. Love is surrender to his will. Shout about love, and the wars will all end. You can shout, we're all brothers, and even pretend, but you can't cover up the past. Just pretending will never last. For without him, love is not to be found. For love is surrender. Love is surrender to his will. Love is surrender to his will. The last point is a spiritual edge demonstrated. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's worth an amen. In John 14, Jesus pointedly told his disciples, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Those who have received Christ are reborn. Our spirits, once separated from God, have been reunited in life-giving fellowship with our Creator. For those who believe, every provision has been made for this relationship right here, right now, in this life. It doesn't mean a life free from struggle and hardship. It does mean a life free from the rule and authority of the evil kingdom and Satan, 
the prince of darkness and ruler of this age. Through the power of the cross, we've been given the means to live free, free to hear and heed the voice of the good shepherd, to see and rejoice in what the Father is doing around us, to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in all things. Folks, this is life. In conclusion, going back a little bit earlier in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you rather, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have to fight an inclination to spiritual dullness. We fight it by spending whatever amount of time might be necessary in God's Word on a daily basis. This is the pathway, as we've said, to spiritual maturity. A maturity that recognizes and rejects sinful behavior, thoughts and attitudes that are common to the world around us. The world would have us believe that sexual immorality and perversion are simply choices individuals are free to make. That marriage is simply an agreement between two individuals, and certainly not binding, and it doesn't even have to be between a man and a woman. It can be whatever. The world tells us it's okay to sacrifice our children on the altar of prosperity so that we can have a nicer house or a nicer car or take vacations whenever we want to. The world maintains that success is not measured by our fulfilling a divine purpose, but how much money we have in the bank, or how much frenetic activity we can push our families into. That it's okay to almost go to any length to get whatever we want, because after all, we deserve it. That it's expected that we immerse ourselves in media on a flat screen that's for the most part godless, profane, and immoral, all under the heading of entertainment. The world is dead wrong on these points. And the world is destined for the wrath of God and utter destruction. But those who have believed the gospel and live accordingly, our fellow heirs with Christ, citizens of an incorruptible, eternal, heavenly kingdom. We've been made righteous by the shed blood of the Lamb, set apart for good works. We've been delivered from the second death, made alive in Christ, and sealed with a Holy Spirit of promise. We are utterly fulfilled and made complete by the one who has created us and redeemed us. Why? Or why would we choose any other path in this life than the one he sets on? He sets us on. Press on to maturity, church. Be the presence of Jesus Christ where you live, work, and play. Be radically alive and your surrender to His ways, His truth, 
and his life. Bow your heads.